join Derek and Yvonne Mulligan, your enthusiastic hosts on The Hipstorians, as we whiz back and forth through time and covering the stories that have shaped our world. With listeners spanning across 39 countries, this compelling podcast will bridge the past and the present in an entertaining, accessible and lively way. Tomorrow may be a mystery, but on The Hipstorians, everything else is history. We explore historical events through interviews with world-renowned authors and historians, deep diving into different eras and uncovering hidden gems. Whether you're a history aficionado or a curious newcomer, we offer something for everyone. So subscribe today to embark on your time-traveling adventure with us, the Hipstorians. Connect with a community that shares your passion for the past and stay tuned for engaging interviews, enlightening discussions and a fresh take on history. So grab that cuppa, get comfortable. Here we go. Welcome, Hipstorians, to another episode. And this week we are broadcasting to you from a wet, lovely Leitrim, having basked in seven or eight days of glorious sunshine. Really beautiful it was. Today we're going to talk about a subject that bamboozles most Irish people. And um, usually when they hear the word, they remember their intercert or junior cert history, and just that glaze comes over the eyes and go, okay, it's all rather complex and we really don't care anymore. But Gretchen has done a fantastic job on changing that with a gripping narrative. Uh, the book is called The Treaty, and it really goes well into explaining what exactly this thing is that we signed up for and the reverberations and effects on uh, the people of Ireland thereafter. So with no further ado, I would just like to welcome Gretchen Freeman. Welcome to the Upstorians. Hello, thank you very much for having me. So because I've actually I've messaged you a good while back. We're I think at the end of this month, uh, we're going to be a year in business as such. And I know yeah. I had been messaged. I know we kind of between timing and all that, we weren't able to do it. So I'm really, really glad we have gotten around to do it today. So just to give our listeners, again, it is very confusing. I mean, most of us leave school and we just know the term, you know, the War of Independence, and we know the treaty, and we have a vague idea, something around the early 1920s. We start getting into dates and stuff, everybody gets a little, a little bit confused. And especially around the fact that the War of Independence, in its essence, was kicked off in the 21st of January, 1919 when the first doll so the first parliament sat in the round house of the mansion house which is now the mayor's residence in in dublin city uh, and it was from that point on that essentially the uh, irish when the irish volunteers or the ira were at war with the english so maybe gretchen you could give us just a little bit of uh, an overview of some of the characters and the events that happened just before the signing of the treaty there had been this home rule movement for quite some time. You know, I mean, home rule was first introduced this going back to the late 19th century, 1886. Gladstone first introduced that. So there had been for some time this issue of how to deal with the most conspicuously discontented member of, of uh, the United Kingdom, um, which obviously was Ireland. Uh, so they'd been trying to work out this problem for a long time, and it had dominated British politics. Things began to go really downhill, if you like, in terms of how this conflict resolution was was progressing. Um, in, in 1912, uh, the, the, um, you had the, the drilling and the marching in the Unionist northeast of Ulster. Um, and so and at the same time, the nationalists had been holding on, waiting for home rule. You know, um, they had expected that they were going to get home rule. And there was huge frustration that, that this hadn't been granted and this hadn't been affected. And, and so then we get into the, the creation of the uh, paramilitaries. So I think it was the 1st of January that the UVF was formed. And then in November 1913, uh, you had the Irish volunteers formed. Um, and so then essentially things are, are very you know, rapidly coming to a head. You have the, the Curra mutiny in uh, the spring of 19, uh, well, people, the British don't like to call it uh, a mutiny because they say it's an instant because officially no, no uh, orders were rejected, but effectively officers stationed in um, Ireland and the Curra Island made it clear to their command that they were not going to implement, they were not going to impose home rule 
um, on, on Northern Ireland. So effectively what we had in the run-up to uh, 1914 was this um, increasingly confrontational, dangerous situation, which seemed to be that Ireland was drifting towards civil war. Um, and then, and of course, what thing made things worse, the Bachelor Walk atrocities. So when ran guns into Hoth, courtesy of Erskine Childers and um, his Asgard yacht, um, which he'd acquired through his wife, uh, Molly. I think it was Molly's father <laughs> that gave um, gave them the, the, the yacht. So they had brought guns uh, brought guns into the south then, and, and the trade is you had the lockout as well. So effectively, if you think about the British government, they're looking at the north of Ireland, the northeast, seeing that the loyalists are armed. Now they're looking at the south of Ireland and the nationalists are armed. The Bachelor Walk um Mutiny, uh, Bachelor Walk uh, massacre um, caused, of course, a, a huge uh, degree of consternation that the British would say that the harsher retaliation against the gun running in the South was because they, they were sort of they did it in broad daylight and they didn't do it undercover like they did in the Lahn gun running. All of this suddenly evaporates. So you know, I think it was July 1914 that they were uh, running the guns into Hoth and then that afternoon uh, there was the, the Bachelor Walk um, atrocity. And so then within a couple, within a few weeks, you then have the Great Cataclysm, the Great War. Home rule gets shelved. So it gets put onto the statute books, but it's shelved indefinitely, sort of time, potentially for a time when, you know, the war is going to end and nobody knows how long the war is going to go on for. And and during this time, um, the volunteers split. Uh, so the volunteers go with uh, most of the volunteers who, you know, if you think about them, they're the equivalent of the, the UVF, right? So they're the paramilitaries, they're the physical force uh, nationalists. So they most of them go with Redmond, who has supported the Irish supporting the British war effort, right? Um, but a small minority don't. And that minority includes obviously Pierce and Tom Clark. And they're sitting there thinking, actually, this is terrible for us. The whole uh, march towards a confrontation with the British where they thought that they were going to bring things to a head, that seemed to have completely fallen away. You know, many would say that the Easter Rising was a result of, of them essentially worried that constitutionalism had won. You know, I mean, separatism had slipped off the agenda altogether. People were, there was a general feeling that everyone should rally around and, and defeat Germany, right? So This powder keg that, that happens. What I'm noticing, and I'm sure, you, sure you, you, you'll bring it up, is that how the people weren't necessarily behind this nationalist movement. So there's a large majority of people who are quite happy to run with Redmond and let things pan out uh, constitutionally, go, go that nice peaceful route. It was a much smaller majority that wanted to fight. Yeah, and that's true. But also we should look at it as well from the British perspective too, that from 1915, a coalition government had been introduced. So you no longer have the Conservatives against the Liberals trying to make political capital out of the uh, Ulster discontent, discontent, the Ulster unionist discontent. You know, that, that was helping the Conservatives, or so they thought. And it did look like to the Liberals that they were on track to lose an election, which was due, I think, in 1915. So that also is really important because uh, the fact that there is a coalition government now it means that Ireland and Ireland's troubles are of less importance to the British government. Um, and that potentially explains why they weren't very they weren't very smart in the way that they handled the Easter 1916 rising. Um, because of course, you know, in as usual with the British response to an Irish rebellion, they, they used excessive force. And what did that do? That sort of cemented feeling against them, that, that roused feeling against them. And, uh, you know, where there had not been any before because the insurgents were hoping to, to rouse the Irish people out of what they saw as their slumber, you know, that they had forgotten that, that there was this great religious drive. But, you know, they saw... Um, the idea of um, establishing an uh, Irish Republic um, 
Well, certainly that's how it was interpreted afterwards as this sort of sacred objective. And, and the Irish people had um, let that go by the wayside. The way that the, the British dealt with this, they killed the leaders and, and the seven that um, signed the proclamation. Eamon de Valera was exempt because he'd been born in America, born in New York. And if you think about it, I mean, Griffith sort of, Arthur Griffith said that uh, it was absolutely, uh, you know, he really thundered against the um, excessive response. You could also say that perhaps they had the worst of both worlds, you know, because if, if they were going to be excessive to the point that Griffith said that they were, why didn't they effectively get rid of all of the insurgents you know I mean the deaths could have been much greater that's not to say that the deaths weren't appalling of course it was an overreaction and they ensured that there was going to be a sympathetic reaction to an insurgency that they could have limited that they could have contained if they had had somebody who was actually properly aware and versed uh on you know about the sympathies of and about the sensibilities of of um, Irish nationalism and and of course they didn't. Herbert Asquith said you know no he's had no involvement before in Ireland, <laughs> so you know I mean it kind of says everything. Okay. Um, anyway, so the, so then we have um, so after 1916, really the idea that the goal of a fully independent Ireland of a of a, of a republic becomes more and more interpreted. Uh, by the nationalists, they they see that as a sacred objective. You know, that just it grows in its significance over the years. You know, in many ways, you could say that actually the Easter nineteen sixteen um, leaders they succeeded in their objective because you know their idea was to you know say well well we're going to have this uh, provisional democracy. We're gonna we're gonna basically. Uh, say that this is what should happen because we're expecting the consent of the people and the consent of the people was there in the years afterwards. Um, Because, of course, largely because of the way the British handled it, right? The Great War, of course, became the overriding objective of the British. And so this let Ireland sort of simmer away. You know, they didn't really grasp the nettle ever because they were focused, which is you know, really understandable on, on uh, trying to win a, a, a an existential war, an existential conflict, right? So, and and of course, their entire empire was utilized in this conflict, um, and and that becomes of huge um, importance as well because the British really saw their empire as ultimately the foundation of their superpower. British public saw it as well as the as the foundation of their superpower status, and and that the sentiment towards the empire in the the aftermath of the the Great War was really very warm. You've got to understand that that when the Irish were jumping ahead suddenly, when the Irish were were protesting that uh, they wanted a republic to the the British people, that was just completely anathema. um, They saw their empire as a family of nations and um, that they were the enlightened empire. You know, they weren't like the Germans who were seen as uh, aggressive and and just martial. This claim for home rule, well, home rule, of course, was no longer after the 1916 uh, rising. That was no longer really viable. Um, there was a convention. Things were made worse by this 1917 convention when Redmond uh, had been promised by Lloyd George that if they all the participating parties in this convention, which were including you know, the Southern Unionists, the Ulster Unionists, if they'd all agreed to something that uh, effectively Lloyd George and the British government would agree to that as well. But what Lloyd George didn't say was that he'd already sort of said to Carson, Edward Carson, who was the leader of the Ulster Unionists and this very um, sort of strident, charismatic character. Um, he and, and uh, absolutely determined that um, Ulster wasn't going to lose out, although let's not get into Carson too much. But basically, Lloyd George had said to Carson, we're not going to allow Ulster to be pushed around or to be coerced. Right, so I'll, I'll, he'd said we will protect Ulster, while also saying to Redmond, "Well, I'll, I'll work out. You know, I'll, I'll take on an agreement if you can all come to an agreement." Anyway, effectively, the 1917 convention um, was really to sort of placate the Americans who'd come into the war at that point. More importantly, I guess, in that year was the fact that uh, Eamon de Valera was elected in East Clare. 
Um, and then you had this rash of by-elections. I think actually the first was South Longford from memory. Um, and then it was East Clare. This revolutionised the, uh, the electoral uh, landscape because the Irish party were no longer, they, they no longer spoke for the Irish nation. Sinn Féin spoke for the Irish nation. And, and in fact, the Irish party was sort of, they were almost the factionalists that they used to deride the separatists as being. So 1918, you get the elections, Sinn Féin prevail, um, and they say, we're not going to take our seats at Westminster. And then January 1919, they they established the the revolutionary Doyle, the first revolutionary Doyle. And then on the same day, you have the solo Hedbeg shootings. Um, And then really the, the War of Independence becomes problematic really in 1920 more so than 1919 particularly in the autumn of 1920 when you had the bloody sunday crow park massacre and then you had uh, kilmaine etc uh, and so then there was this attempt to i mean really starting actually in spring of 1920 to try and get to a resolution to try and get to some sort of solution in the meantime um Northern Ireland's creation had been cemented by the ratification or the the coming into force, rather, of the um, Government of Ireland Act. So that happened in May 1921. This clears the the way for David Lloyd George, the UK Prime Minister, to, to offer an olive branch to the separatists because he's got the unionists off his back. So on July 11. Um, we have scooting over all the various negotiations that happened, you know, very uh, complex negotiations that happened over May, June. But by July 11, a truce had come into force. The War of Independence was suspended effectively, um, but they, ha- they had to sort of hammer out the terms of the, the truce. Then it was, well, let's have a negotiation, a conference to try and hammer out a um a lasting peace settlement um and and that's what the treaty negotiations were what they weren't called the treaty negotiations they were called the irish conference that's what it used to be referred to in, in the press at the time in july the Sinn Féin, a, a contingent of Sinn Féin um leaders went over to meet david lloyd george and and the british Eamon de valera met david lloyd george at that point and they had a number of meetings alone. <laughs> they didn't get on. David Lloyd George threatened Eamon de Valera with renewed war. And so, again, this was going to be a tactic that we'd see throughout the uh, treaty negotiations. There was no resolution. Um, no even no, no one had, could even find a common ground to, to try and say, all right, we can move here. You know, here's an, an embark embarkation point for for the negotiations. I mean, this is how uh, difficult everything was. Um, And it took another, it it took many more weeks before they could actually agree terms just for for a meeting, for a conference. They were were only really offering dominion status. And and I suppose to get an understanding of the, the characters involved, certainly when we're, we're pushing forward to the actual treaty negotiations then in, um, in December is the likes of De Valera, as you said, who who didn't get on and, you know, not long sprung from Frongoch jail in uh, uh, Lewis. Eamon uh, Valera was Lewis. Michael Collins being behind that. And Michael Hol- Collins was a main, main player himself and our Arthur Griffith. Now, Collins had been part of the IRA and had headed up a... Uh, a, a squad made quite a few assassinations uh, along the way through the, the War of Independence. But to yeah. get a sense, like De Valera was on one side and wanted absolutely the, the Republic. Lloyd George was saying, no, Dominion status, that's it. Now, what was the position around the July or between July and December of, say, Griffith and, and Collins? Were they moderate? Were they with De Valera before he he sent them over? You know, what, what was their standing within the uh, within the whole uh, Sinn Féin settle? Yeah, well, I mean, Griffith initially uh, had envisaged 
this idea of the dual monarchy, so that Ireland would be independent, but they'd share a common monarchy. But he wasn't going to stand in the way of this resurgent Republican tide um, after 1917, 1918. Um, and so then he became sort of um, an unreconstructed separatist as well in terms of, you know, like, this is what we must have. Um, and Collins also was seen, certainly by the British, as being very strident, uh, being more aggressive in terms of his republicanism than de Valera. The British saw Griffith as being moderate because of his past. And in fact, so did many of the other separatists. That's why they didn't like Griffith. A lot of them disliked Griffith. Collins was seen as well, he was the de facto leader of the IRA. He was the president of the IRB, the Irish Republican Brotherhood. He was head of the you know, the, the Dublin Intelligence. So, you know, he had all these hats. He was minister for finance. Collins was very concerned that the British had not given a free hand in terms of their military might. And he was a realist in that sense. So, I think you need to sort of, the way I would look at it is say that everybody wanted a republic. Nobody was sort of disputing that ultimate goal of they wanted a, a republic. It was how were you going to get there? And was it a realistic goal in the near term? I mean, even in December 1920, Collins was writing to a colleague saying this, uh, that the British weren't using that, that the full might of their military against the IRA and that if they did then the Irish were never going to be able to defeat the English. The way to look at Collins really is to sort of say he was ultimately a pragmatic politician. You know he wasn't of the same um, idealism uh, if you like as Breen, Dan Breen, you know that they were just going to absolutely adhere to that that goal of of you know because they saw it as being a, a sort of sacred objective as I said before which had been really entrenched by the 1916 the, the, the sacrifice of the 1916 uh, leaders and then of course you've just had two years of conflict that people have seen their colleagues their friends fall in a conflict against the English and effectively the whole country has been motivated against the English because they see them as the invading enemy. I mean, it was really, it was easy to, to unite the, the disparate elements of Sinn Féin, and they really were sort of an omnibus movement. When you have this one common enemy to fight against. So in terms of how, you know, were uh, Collins and Griffiths with Eamon de Valera, they were, you know, they, they saw him, that they were clearly sort of, uh, frictions developing uh, between Collins and De Valera, um, but effectively, they 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 were uh, they they all thought that they were aiming towards this one sort of goal of trying to establish an in, an independent island. The question was, how was that going to be done? It, it all became very complicated because Eamon De Valera said he wasn't going to go to the negotiations. And Collins was furious because he wanted him. He wanted, he, Collins wanted to go to London. He was just, uh, I mean, there's this view, I think, that uh, Collins didn't want to go, but he did. He wanted to play his, his part on the international stage. He, um, and, he, and there's no way that Eamon de Valera could have uh, left him in Dublin either. Um, because he just was far too important. He was effectively, he was de facto, de facto leader of the IRA, as I said. You couldn't extract an agreement or you couldn't agree to anything with the British unless you had Collins say so. So he had to go. Um, the point was that Eamon de Valera wasn't going. And um, so this was really a, an extremely divisive move. Um, and you know, it put, I, I think you just, through the treaty negotiations, you just saw those divisions become more and more pronounced.
it put it put Collins in an absolute impossible situation. I mean, he he knew he could come back with a, a treaty signed, or he could come back to Ireland being at war with England. My my own personal view is De Valera left him, hung him out to dry on that particular point um, so that he could take a stance and and still fight and honour the 1916 Rising and continue the fight for the Republic. But, you know, to look back uh, through time from sitting here today and to see, like, how on earth did we go from the War of Independence to the Irish Civil War? And essentially, you know, it wasn't a civil war between the, the UVF and the IRA. Now, we're talking about the IRA and, and the pragmatists, or or not even the pragmatists. That, that, that's why I wanted to talk about Collins being a, a, a moderate. You know, like you say, he wasn't. You know, he, he wasn't this thing that he was always almost made to look like when he had to take charge of the of the free state army uh, and then go to war against all his ex uh, his ex colleagues uh, when we went on to have the, uh, the 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 civil war it's uh, it's it's incredible stuff it it, it really is um so and so when they go so de valera has got has got this stance and de valera is is the president as well of the so-called in inverted commas the the republic you know to have him not go seems utterly daft Yeah, well, I mean, this, I I think uh, the reasons why De Valera didn't go, whether he should have gone, will be debated until the end of time. Um, I mean, De Valera's perspective, from his perspective, it is important to to realise that, I mean, yes, there were frictions between um, Collins and, and De Valera, but we shouldn't exaggerate them either. I mean, I think De Valera's goal and his objective was to try and keep the the movement together the Sinn Féin movement together the um I mean it was going to be I mean my my belief is that it was a mistake not to go right but um I think De Valera thought that he could he could affect an uh, a, a solution by you know, he he could impose his own solution from Dublin once the negotiations had collapsed. To, to say that he did that entirely to undermine Collins, I just, I think that's wrong. I, I think De Valera's uh, motivation and, you know, divining his motivation is also incredibly difficult. But his, his motivation was essentially to, to preserve unity. Um, and that was what um, governed his behaviour. Uh, and his decisions. They must have known, though, surely that like what what they were going over ultimately for. Like they they must have known that they were going to agree to something, or they were coming home, you know, without anything being signed. But this was the problem that the Irish hadn't really worked out what success looked like. Eamon de Valera conceived this idea, which was very sophisticated, uh, of external association. So that Ireland would sort of uh, align with Britain on matters of uh, foreign policy, etc. He, he didn't tell this to the Doyle. He told this to the cabinet. Collins and Griffith weren't clear that this was his final word. You know that um, beyond this he wouldn't go. Um, and and so you know there there were there were ambiguities and um, right from the beginning, sort of embedded into to the the communication between um, the London plenipotentiaries and Dublin. And of course, the plenipotentiaries, uh, you know, were they allowed to sign anything anyway? They they had to refer it back to Dublin. Now, that was the note that de Valera sort of sent to, uh, you know, he said, you, know, you mustn't sign, and, you know, this is coming from the cabinet, you mustn't sign anything to refer it back to us. But he didn't have the, you know, he couldn't override the Doyle in that way. So that was, I think Griffith saw that as being something, you know, that he he didn't have to necessarily um, comply with. And de Valera himself had been, he had been very careful in during the, the period of the truce to not be emphatic about a claim for a republic. I mean, so he was uh, sort of, uh, sending out very uh, ambiguous signals too. I mean, famously said, you know, I, I, I don't want to be, I can't remember the exact words, but I don't want to be held down by, you know, the, this demand for a republic. As far back as 19, 
20, I think February 1920, I can't quite remember, but he had an interview in the US about Cuba. Uh, and so he sort of effectively then said, why why wouldn't Britain just see um, Ireland in the same way that the US sees Cuba? You know, effectively, Ireland won't sign a an alliance or, um, a, or, or uh, join a, a treaty that would in any way threaten British security, right? So he's already... Uh, qualified sovereignty there. Um, now, when he got back, um, he got a lot of stick for, for that from Karl, Karl Brewer. I never say his name correctly, Countess Markovich, um, and a whole lot of others. Um, but Arthur Griffith and Michael Collins defended him and, and said that he is our leader, we need to stick by him. So you could say that um, De Valera would take from that example that Griffith and Collins were going to stick by and that they weren't going to undermine and that they weren't going to come back and they weren't going to disobey his instructions to, to not sign, right? And and you could say that Griffith and, and Collins could take from that ultimately at his heart, at core, Amy De Valera is a, you know, De Valera is a moderate he's a, he, uh, and, and he wants a pragmatic solution as well. And this is the only thing that we can we can do. I mean, effectively, what they had done is that the, the, there was that awful cabinet meeting that just went on and on on December 3rd. But the, basically, um, as uh, John Regan had said um, as well, um, they had been asked to go back and, and sign and say, OK, we'll, we'll accept war, because that was the dilemma that they were being faced with, that they were told, you know, either you um, accept dominion status um, or, or it's effectively, or it's war, the war is back on. I mean, really, in terms of public opinion, once they had eliminated the Ulster uh, issue, well, then the Irish were, I mean, they were right to say that the Ulster issue was something that they should break on, because British opinion was effectively, well, you know, this was very, un it was unusual to them too that Ireland should be petitioned. They didn't think it was natural. The Irish people didn't think it was natural. So there was really no um, great upswell of support for the Ulster, you know, unionists saying we want this, these these six counties to be solidified as a, a sort of a statelet, if you like. Um, and had they broken on that, then there could have been a lot of sympathy, but obviously that they, that didn't happen. That was taken away from them. So they got down to the last, you know, uh, to at the end, they were uh, basically saying, well, we don't want to go into the empire. And so that's, that's the reason that we're not going to sign this. Now, that wouldn't have cut a lot of mustard with the British population, nor would have cut a lot of mustard with the Americans, the Dominion population. You know, most of the English-speaking world would have been against that position. And most of the Irish people, by the way, would have been against that position. I, you know, no one really agreed to the treaty and said, "Oh, this is um, this is the great, the greatest document <laughs> of all time." Um, but the majority of opinion was in favour of the treaty. Yeah, they didn't. I mean, the the, the public didn't want to go to war uh, against England. And, uh, you know, I know there would have been a lot of soldiers having returned from fighting um, in the First World War and very whether they would have fought for their country you know some of them certainly did but uh, yeah. were to, to rise up and they simply couldn't have fought a full-scale war with with England uh, and England not distracted by you know fronts further away would have been ended uh, pretty swiftly uh, it is just interesting I suppose to, to note you know that that Griffith and, and Collins went over and signed something then really, you know, you could say then they probably shouldn't have, you know, and they should have come back and we'd have had more negotiations perhaps or, you know, try them. Would you've got, would you, would you've got an agreement? I mean, would, uh, would the treaty have been signed if the Boundary Commission hadn't been kept vague and ambiguous? It, most likely it wouldn't have. I, I don't think that uh, Collins wanted, uh, Collins definitely didn't want a divided um, island you know, the, the the question about uh, Collins is when did he actually decide to sign the treaty? You know, he said he was going to sign the treaty on the on the um, so on the fifth of December. They had uh, these very uh, fraught meetings, and they um, were told uh, the second of these meetings that um, Griffith effectively unilaterally said that he was going to sign the treaty, and. 
I mean, when when we, uh, of course, that sort of completely collapsed the cohesion of the Irish delegation. It's it's very easy to look at it in the abstract and say, oh, well, Griffith made this um, error of you know, just um, agreeing with Lloyd George when he should have. Why would he unilaterally have just said, I'm going to, I'll sign the treaty? Um, that was a breach of his responsibility, uh, his responsibilities as the head of the delegation. But you also have to remember that this was after uh, you know many, many weeks, six, seven weeks of intense negotiation um, where the threat of renewed violence was always there, that the, the uh, threat of another crisis was always there. They weren't just battling the, the they weren't tr- just trying to thrash out a negotiation with the, the British negotiators. They were also trying to negotiate with Dublin, you know, with the, the with their hostile cabinet in, in Dublin, because um those that had remained were not in favor of an agreement. Well, it was unclear to what extent they were in favor of an agreement in the, in the sense that I mean, it gets, I don't know to what extent you want to go into to this, but I mean, Carl Brill was clearly trying to uh, establish his control over the army. It, it seems that he might have made his support of uh, Amy de Valera's external association sort of conditional upon him uh, cementing his control over the army. So, you know, all these things were going on in the background, uh, and this was not making it any easier for uh, the negotiators in Ireland. So, I mean, I think they really there wasn't a real definition of what of how they were going to define the sovereignty. I mean, they wanted full sovereignty, but what were they prepared to to, to do to, to establish? Were they, you know, was everybody going to just have to throw themselves into an endless war to establish this pure sort of sovereignty? You know, and that was never really conceivable. So then it was, well, you know, how do you then work out a practical position? And no one had ever, no one had really sort of um, bent their minds in that way. You know, they, they'd been so concentrated, as I said before, on the fight against the common enemy. I know you'd said before that what is some sort of legacy of the treaty. I mean, the historians today would probably, yes, the treaty was the catalyst for the civil war. These divisions um, and the fact that Sinn Féin was such a uh, sort of uh, a loose alliance in any case, it was the catalyst. But, you know, to what extent was this going to work out in any case? There was always going to be some sort of split, wasn't there? There was always going to be some sort of... Um, division and how are they going to work out those divisions so so the treaty clarified it right brutally for everybody i'm sure well i know colin certainly wouldn't have envisioned or wanted a war with his former colleagues griffith obviously slightly different but i'm sure you know he didn't he signed it with the view to not having renewed violence some of the unfortunate legacy is still obviously reverberating around the the northern part of the country but also the fact that you know after the civil war well you know, the Republic wasn't achieved as they wanted it. Everything stayed the same. And it was much later that we actually became officially a Republic. So nothing was really gained by the Civil War other than to separate sides along the political lines, Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael, uh, right up until the last election, actually, when the two of those parties <laughs> joined together uh, for the sake of a ministerial pension. But there you go. Sorry, I interrupted you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was a treaty left um, unresolved petition, right? I mean, it, it left all of that to be worked out at another time. But I mean, that was reflective as well, not only of the, well, Lloyd George needed a solution, but this was always a, a strain of uh, Irish nationalism. They never really confronted the fact that you know, the Ulster unions were a cultural and a political problem for them. They always thought that they could negotiate it. That if the things would just step out of the way, they could they could solve this problem. I mean, that goes right back to O'Connell. He never saw the um, loyalists as a as a real sort of uh, cultural political obstacle. They would they they were uh, th- this was an issue that could be it was a conventional issue. It could be it could be negotiated. That's very um, interesting you say that because that like, that's true right up until today. 
nobody still, I even think, considers the, the loyalist, you know, unionist and loyalist. Loyalist is the, the hardcore element. They still view it that we can deal with this, you know, constitutionally and everyone would join forces. It's not true. And the English obviously didn't uh, realise they were like this. The Irish and the nationalists didn't. And still to this day, uh, they don't. And hence, we may have peace, but a tentative peace of that. Yeah, I, I think we just have to, to really the idea is to try and have a more pluralist polity, you know, like a state that is more pluralist, pluralist in its outlook. You know, I mean, if you look at the 1937 constitution, it was uh, quite patently elevated Catholicism, you know, as for a Catholic nation. It wasn't in any way designed for Protestants or it wasn't in any way inclusive to Protestants. And it also had um, that territorial claim in it as well. So from the Ulster Unionist perspective, they would say, well, we want the right to be British. And that is our right to choose to be British. So, um, <laughs> you know, that is our self de- that is our self-determination. So how how dare you deny me? As I'm saying this is what the Ulster Unionists might argue. Yeah. Um, this right to self-determination and and that's actually what they they did argue at the time you know they were not going to to move an inch and of course they were helped by the fact that the Tories uh, were had this you know, long uh, political allegiance with uh, the, the loyalists and and Britain effectively or the United Kingdom could impose its will on the nationalist community because it was a superpower and um you know you have to the reality of the time was that Ireland was trying to gain independence from a superpower uh, when they'd just come through a great war. And <laughs> yes, they were not at the, the strength that they had been. I mean, in terms of they were overstretched. You could see just as that the empire was sort of expanding, you'd also see the limitations of uh, this great uh, imperial enterprise. They really didn't stand any chance of militarily defeating the British. And it's interesting, as, as not being Irish, right, by birth, this and, and delving into this part of history must have been bamboozling for you and getting over the bamboozling (laughs) no it doesn't it doesn't so to get so you definitely got over that and i wonder now you know how does it make sense the way we're left today or you still left scratch your head going guys these are all mad (laughs) no no not at all uh i mean nationalism was an internationalist movement right so um I, it, it's all of a piece in a way. Um, and I find it very interesting um, because, and it's not why I wrote the book, by the way, because somebody um, sort of said, was it because you're Australian, you're interested in, in you know, why would you be interested in, in uh, the treaty? It is interesting in the sense that Australia was part of the Commonwealth too. I grew up in a in a, a country where we raised the British flag in primary school, raised the British flag first, and then we raised the Australian flag. So, you know, I mean, to me, it was interesting to see, well, Ireland was the first to sort of break away. Um, and Australia didn't, have, of course, have the same relationship with um Britain as Ireland. I mean, Ireland was a colony, but you know, Australia was sort of saw Britain as the mother country. It had a completely different relationship uh, with the the imperial centre. Um, but you know, of course, it, it's you know, throughout the twentieth century, Australia sort of increasingly detached itself from um, from London, and that process is still ongoing. And whether you know, will Australia become a republic? You know, that's that's an argument that's um, current now. So all of those things were um, interesting for me. Um, but yeah, so I, I mean, do I, do I say that it's all very complicated? Of course, it's very complicated. Yes, it is. Because you always have to, there were so many, um, you know, there's so many aspects. To, I mean, every, look, every uh, history is complicated, but, you know, if, even if you, do you define Ireland, for example, as a colony, you know, or do you, because, I mean, it, the whole point of the Union, for example, was that it was going to assimilate Ireland into the United Kingdom. But yet 
then at the same time it has these vestiges of you know sort of uh, a, a colonial um you know, of a colonial conquest because it's got the Lord Lieutenant position and the Dublin Castle bureaucracy, which is not run in any uh, way that would sort of reflect the needs of the people. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's in so many ways, it's uh, an extremely uh, complex, but also fascinating and rich history. So well, neither the nationalist or um, uh, the loyalists are black, are black and white. I mean, like I, I would consider myself, I'd have Republican leanings, but I'd certainly be on the side of Michael Collins. And I believe the treaty was the right thing to do. Do you know what I mean? So I don't, you know, and yeah. do, how do I see Northern Ireland? Well, like you say, to have that pluralist view to allow, you know, the, the Protestants or the loyalists a chance to, to self-determination. Oh, I totally agree. So, you mm-hmm. know, all these different shades, and it's interesting that your book draws out and you discuss here a lot of the say difficulties maybe that stemmed from the treaty and the, and the civil war that, that followed was, like you say, the lack of unity or clarity of, of vision within the nationalist movement uh, as, as a whole. Um, and it goes a long way. Like, you did a great job of, of explaining it. I hope the book has, has sold well. Hopefully this will give it an extra little plug as well. It's really, really important. I, I think for ourselves, even as just Irish people, it it, it helps get a grafting of who are we? You know, what is it we, that I, I really believe in? Do you know what I mean? And what, and what way? What way do what? Because I'd have it. I did, you know, conversation. Uh, was out with a friend, and uh, he'd been really like. I've had a few. I had it uh, last week. We were interviewing uh, um, a Crumlin Road Jade Escapee, uh, Donald mm. Lee, and you know he, he stayed remained at large for the whole the whole time since 1960. He was never caught, and you know he would be. He was grew up in a Republican family, and now he's in his early fifties, and he's pulling away so much from it oh god it's just yeah you know he's given up on a lot of that dogma uh, and he's become much more pliable and you know i think gladly we're starting to move that way as a nation uh, and the and the more you know i suppose amenable and pliable that we are the better chance we have of having a, a country that that uh well, is yeah out. well i mean i think i um not to, to quote Bernie Ahern, but he was instrumental in the 1998 agreement. So, um, you know, I, I will quote him, but he, he uh, I mean, he said that uh, it's the Irish uh, people that have sovereignty, you know, and, um, and not the state. Um, and I think um, that sort of gave a very, um, it really shifted the conversation away um, from the, you know, the, these old um, sectarian divides. I mean, religion was always the dividing line in Ireland. Um, and, you know, you must be able to say Ireland, I mean, today is so different from what it was 100 years ago. But, you know, Ireland encompasses, you can be Irish, but also Protestant. You can be Irish, but also Muslim, Jewish, do you know what I mean? I, that, I think that's the, um, the, the religion is no longer the, the dividing line that it once was. I, I would say I'd say religion isn't isn't uh, there at all. Full stop. But yeah, you're right. I mean, even the last twenty years, uh, you know, I I'd remember 1993 has been a kind of seminal year for me. I was 18, uh, but I'd notice Italians and Spanish people coming to Ireland. It was like, oh my god, there's people that aren't Irish in Ireland. Uh, and now, you know, been out in the city last last Friday night, and I'm going. I can't find any Irish people. Do you know what I mean? And it's got this real kind of European vibe and everyone's out in the street just talking and, you know, really relaxed atmosphere. And yeah, it's 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 totally changed, but it's great. You know, it's great that we have all this now. We've started to mature as, as a people. But, yeah, uh, well, so, so and I mean, I, you clearly have very, uh, you're very sympathetic towards uh, Collins, but and so you'd be then a supporter of what he said is the stepping stone. Yeah. <laughs> the treaty was the stepping stone. Yeah, to... yeah, that, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't support Finnegan. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh no, I'm not. So yeah, it's all like you know, it's been quite yeah, quite confusing for me uh, as of late. It's been fantastic. Yeah, thanks so much. It's been really illuminating. You've explained it really well. Uh, and, uh, we have a nice conversation about uh, all things before and and after the treaty. Um, and yeah, very very important piece of paper altogether. Are you going to write a book again? Do you think, or is this your? You know, um. Yeah, yeah, well, I'm hoping to, so we'll yeah, see. Good, 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 good. I know there is. <laughs> I think once you've got the history bug, it's very hard to to let it go, but, you know. Very hard. Well, Yvonne here is the newbie to history now. I've, I've, <laughs> I've, uh, it's, it's uh, osmosis. It's years of just <laughs> being 
nattering away in her ear and then uh, now eventually um, you're picking up the books and, and get, getting into the whole thing. Uh, but I'm sure it's explained a lot to you, Yvonne, as a Irish history. Yeah, but I yeah. feel even more lost. I thought, <laughs> I thought, I thought your <laughs> statement, Derek, at the very start was going, as soon as we hear it, we kind of shut down, like yeah. we go back to our childhood in schools and uh, we hear the word War of Independence and Treaty and I'm going, oh, I'm out of here. Yeah. <laughs> you know <laughs> Oh, it's all it's so interesting. It's really very interesting. Oh, the yeah. you know, and actually, when you come back to it as an adult, okay, and mm. then start to piece it slowly together, like some of it, because like currently, I'm I'm working on a project in Longford, and it's the Battle of Balnali, where Sean McOwen uh, took on the Crown forces in a very small battle there. That was the fourth of November, nineteen twenty. So piecing this together as part of the war of independence and yeah you know and and i suppose like That's really important to do we so need local research on, on on you know it's so important to um to the overall picture and our understanding i mean i'm not a historian by the way in terms of um you know i'm not a lecturer in a university or anything like that but um i i know that that would be that that type of research is is where a lot of the historians are focused at the moment anyway in terms of trying to sort of take the local situation and see read across um see what that how that changes our interpretation of the overall conflict i mean that's what peter hart did right with um his his cork analysis that's brilliant yeah yeah what have you found in terms of your research well just because we're we're living in leitrim now and i'm working on the interiors of the old rose cottage that's in balnally where sean mcgone got up into the 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 hay and shot single-handedly he kept back the crown forces and the black and tans against yeah. they were going on to granard to to burn out the town this was the, what they were told to do so he yeah. single-handedly kept them back you know what i mean so yeah. and and what i found interesting and i need to learn more about it but he was about to be executed but in the, uh, after nineteen sixteen. No, in 1920 for, oh, okay. for what yeah. he did, like, oh, you know what I mean? Caught, yeah. But he, when he was caught, he was about to be executed, but he was saved because he became a member of the doll. You know what I mean? And, and I don't know how they managed to save him. And he only sat on the doll, I think maybe it was six months. Right. He, he's a massive character within, like, uh, within Longford now. You know what I mean? He's a massive uh, known I've- for that. Sean, th- you know, so yeah. I think he suggested to Collins uh, that, um, in fact, I think he went to Carl Brewer first, and then um, Brewer sent him to Collins that um, that they should start assassinating the British cabinet. <laughs> I think that was his suggestion. That's our boy. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, yeah, he's very closely aligned with Arthur Griffith. Like you know, that's that's for sure. But they're, they're Longford are really putting in a lot of money at the moment to opening up the history trail, uh, especially uh-huh. for the War of Independence and the Battle mm-hmm. of Alnamuk. And um, they've they've done up this huge. They've they've really pumped a huge amount of money in that you can go around these different villages where. Um, you can get a lot of information. So funny enough, when you were saying about, you know, one of the first counties to sign up was uh, was Longford, South Longford. Is that correct? You were saying? Oh, sorry. One of the, in terms of the by-elections, the first by-election that went Sinn Féin, I think, was South Longford. And um, I hope that's right. And then I think it was East Clare. And then um, Collins was in- instrumental, actually, in that South Long. You know, um, I think his slogan was, Put him in to get him out. Uh, you know. So I can't remember the cat. Yeah, yeah. Put him in. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, listen, on, on that note, um, it has been fantastic. Thank you so much, Gretchen, for sharing oh. your knowledge with us. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. We'll definitely catch you again for the for the next book. <laughs> Thank you very much. You're very kind. Yeah. All, All right. right. Gretchen, lovely, lovely to meet you. you.